Hi, and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. My name is Hannah Ambrose, and I'm a senior associate in our international arbitration and public international law practice. I'm joined today by partners Andrew Cannon and Christian Leithley, co-heads of Herbert Smith Freehills Public International Law Practice. We're recording this podcast while we're still in lockdown. Andrew and I are both in the UK, Christian's in New York, and no doubt many of you listening are or have been similarly restricted. Indeed, COVID has led to widespread interference by states with private rights across the globe. So over the next 15 minutes, we're going to focus on the impact of those state actions on foreign investors, and in particular, an area in which we have received a number of client queries of late, the international investment law protections that are relevant to investors and states in the context of COVID-19. We're going to explain which international investment law protections may be relevant in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, we're going to touch on the key considerations for both states and foreign investors when assessing whether state action taken in response to the pandemic could infringe those protections. Andrew, perhaps you could kick us off with some background. Thank you, Hannah. Well, it's clear to all of us that governments are having to make some difficult decisions in response to the spread of the virus, and this has led to a whole range of different measures being taken in different countries. As well as the social distancing regulations and and lockdowns that many of us are seeing, there have been other measures taken, such as the suspension of contractual rights, the requisitioning or nationalisation of private property, closure of borders, export, travel restrictions, um, bailouts of state carriers and and impacts on other forms of infrastructure. Now, we all recognise that in such extraordinary times, a degree of interference with private rights is almost inevitable. States are balancing multiple concerns, looking to protect public health and absorbing expert evidence in a fast-moving environment, while also trying to mitigate damage to the wider economy and society in the short and, and the longer term. But even in times of crisis, there may be a number of potential legal ramifications from this sort of wide-ranging action. This brings us back to your original question as to why, in this context, international law might be relevant for investors. States assume and are subject to international obligations by way of treaties entered into between themselves. These treaties form part of international law and may be relevant in this crisis in a myriad of different ways. Uh, For the purposes of this podcast, we will focus on one area of these international obligations, which is particularly pertinent to our clients in this crisis, both states and private investors, that is, investment treaties. Thanks, Andrew. Christian, can I perhaps turn to you now to explain in a little more detail about investment treaties and why they could be relevant? Yes, thank you. Uh, An investment treaty is an agreement between two or more states which contain reciprocal undertakings for the promotion and the protection of private investments. Now, those investments are typically made by nationals of one state in the territory of the other. And some of these may be bilateral, as to say, between two states, or multilateral, between more than two states. And these treaties can be specifically focused on investment or can be broader, such as free trade agreements or sectoral agreements, which then contain a particular investment protection chapter. Now, these investment protections are usually agreed by states to provide confidence to foreign investors that their investment will not be negatively affected by certain types of regular action by the state hosting the investment. That's known as the host state. Now, whilst these are state-to-state agreements, uniquely, they usually provide provisions allowing a private investor from one state to enforce the protection their investment is afforded in the host state. And that enforcement is usually done through international arbitration. Okay. 
So in terms of this web of bilateral and multilateral agreements, are they all the same in terms of the protections they offer or do they differ? Well, that's very important. While there are lots of similarities in the types of protections offered in many of these agreements, there are differences. For example, the definition of a key term like a qualifying investor and a qualifying investment. These can vary significantly and may mean the protection and the scope of protection offered by those individual treaties differs. And there are also differences in the way the protection is worded itself. As you might expect, subtle differences in the language can have a significant impact on the protection an investor can rely on. Okay. Now, Andrew, obviously taking Christian's point on board regarding the importance of looking carefully at each specific treaty, can you in general terms tell us what the investment protections these treaties tend to offer? Thanks, Hannah. Yes. Well, investment treaties commonly include a, a number of different investment protections, and I'll give you a quick overview of some of the main ones. First, protection against the unlawful expropriation of an investment without adequate compensation. So expropriation basically means having your investment taken away from you. Uh, and the protection applies whether that taking happens directly, such as may occur with a nationalisation, or indirectly, for example, through a series of governmental acts which encroach on an investment and, and result in it being deprived of its value. With the nationalisation of property, for example, the, the key question there is often whether the compensation provided by the state properly reflects the value of the property, and, and we'll come back to that a bit later. Second, there's a guarantee of fair and equitable treatment, or, or so-called FET, which is usually included in these investment treaties. Claims under FET provisions typically fall into two broad categories. One, preventing a denial of justice for investors, and the other, prohibiting arbitrary administrative decision-making. Not all regulatory changes introduced by a state will breach the FET standard, and the existence of such protections does not deprive a state of its ability to exercise its regulatory powers. But FET claims may arise where the state's exercise of its regulatory power is arbitrary, or where it's based on procedural unfairness, lack of due process, bad faith, discrimination, or a failure to protect an investor's legitimate expectations as to how they will be treated. Third, there's usually a guarantee of full protection and security for the investment and for the investor. While this is generally understood to concern a physical protection, it may also encompass broader legal protections. And fourth, there may be guarantees of treatment for the investor that is no less favourable than that given either to nationals of the host state of the investment, so-called national treatment, or to investors of third states, so so-called most favoured nation treatment. These protections are intended to prevent the host state from discriminating against a foreign investor uh, and may allow more favourable protections to be imported from other treaties to which the host state is party. And some treaties also specifically guarantee non-discriminatory treatment with respect to restitution, compensation or other valuable consideration for losses due to civil strife or a state of emergency. Thanks, Andrew. So we know how states' international obligations arise under investment treaties, the sorts of obligations that they might have, and who might be able to rely on those obligations and potentially claim for breach of them. But obviously the key question is, how does this whole regime work in the context of COVID-19? Christian, what are your thoughts on this? Well, there is obviously a considerable balancing act going on at the moment, and this may well need to continue for the medium to longer term. States are facing significant challenges, obviously, in trying to protect public health whilst also dealing with the prospect of short and long-term economic damage. Now, that balancing exercise defines, of course, the function of a state. 
However, whilst the pursuit of public protection is one side of the equation, protection of investors' rights and foreign investors' rights, where there is a treaty, is the other side of the equation. Now, obviously, state responses to these challenges might mean that the foreign investors are facing wide-ranging governmental interference in multiple aspects of their business. And some investors may question whether the extent of the measures imposed in certain jurisdictions is justified or whether the measures are proportionate to the serious economic damage which which state can inflict. Now, to answer that is one question resolved by international law, since this is the law by which the treaty protection is governed. And clearly, if you think for a moment that you as a private investor might be impacted, the first step is to consider whether there is an applicable treaty to rely on between the host state and the investor's home state. And assuming there is an applicable treaty, the fact that state action has had a negative impact on foreign investment may not be enough in and of itself. As I've mentioned already, it's going to depend on the nature of the state action and the wording and interpretation of the treaty. Now, importantly, it's also going to depend on the circumstances in which the state action was taken. And in this regard, obviously, each investor's potential claim against the state will need to be considered on its own merits. Treaty wording is key and the context of governmental action is key as well, as well as obviously the impact. And these are all aspects that have to be carefully scrutinized to be able to answer that simple question of, can an investor seek some kind of relief from a state for the steps that the state has taken? Okay. Now, with that in mind, perhaps we can touch on some of the considerations that both investors and states should be thinking about in assessing whether a state's response to COVID-19 is consistent with its treaty obligations. Yes, these are suggestions for either an investor looking to protect itself or state representatives in either the legislature, executive or judiciary, who are trying to successfully balance the various obligations. First of all, one needs to consider the evidential basis for the state measures introduced to address the pandemic, the length of time for which the measures are imposed and the regularity with which they are reviewed. And a related question is whether the measures restricting private rights and freedoms are proportionate based on the anticipated benefit in terms of fighting the virus and also the possible negative impact of those actions on the affected investors. Proportionality is a term of art and this is that the proportionality of a measure interfering with an investment has been considered in many cases under the guarantee of fair and equitable treatment. Now, going back to the substantive protections which Andrew described, we'd also need to look at the measures themselves and whether they could be discriminatory. Measures that impact unequally or disproportionately on one sector, group or type of company or individual or measures which contradict or undermine any assurances given to sectors, companies or individuals as to their treatment in the context of COVID-19. And these have the potential to breach the prohibition on discrimination and all the protection of fair and equitable treatment. So one might also want to consider the steps that some states are taking to mitigate the damage caused by the measures. And these steps may also be significant either to the substantive basis of a claim or to the measure of damages that may be payable uh, were the claim to succeed. So as you can see, it becomes a very fact-intensive analysis. And I think another interesting aspect 
is that the breadth or scope of emergency powers varies quite considerably between states. There's a risk that some governments may take advantage of the pandemic to cement their own political situation or to erode rights in a really general way. That's right, and we're seeing signs of that in a number of countries already. And the question of whether the emergency legislation or state powers are capable of and are being used for purposes beyond tackling COVID-19 is also likely to be relevant in assessing whether a state's actions are consistent with their treaty obligations for foreign investors. And a slightly different point, but nonetheless relevant, is whether states are using existing domestic laws to address COVID-19 in a manner which could be argued as inconsistent with their legislative intent. Right. And what about any requisitioning of property or state-ordered repurposing of manufacturing facilities, for example, to produce COVID-19 treatments or even PPE or ventilators? Thanks, Honey. Yes, I, I mentioned earlier that investment treaties contain protection against unlawful expropriation. So in the context of any requisitioning or nationalisation, there'll need to be thought given to, to whether any provision has been made for compensation. And if so, how such compensation is calculated? Does it adequately cover the value of the property? And is it readily accessible? Indeed, the availability or otherwise of that compensation for all who are similarly affected may be relevant, uh, including any question of whether nationals of the host state are placed in a better position than foreign investors. Right. So based on what you've both said, it would seem that all of these considerations would be relevant to both states and investors. That's right. These are all points for investors and for states to be thinking about at the moment and and in the future. And we should also highlight, again, quite circumstance specific, that some treaties also carve out or permit state behaviour which interferes with the foreign investment in certain circumstances. So, for example, where the measures the state introduces are intended to protect public health or preserve national security or public order. So certain treaties may include specific provision to this effect. Uh, And as Christian said earlier, it's it's very important to consider each treaty on its specific terms. And finally, in the extraordinary situation in which we find ourselves, there may also be defences available to a state, even in the event there has been a breach of one of the standards of protection I I mentioned earlier. And not just those specific carve-outs set out in the treaty itself, but that exist as defences as a matter of customary international law. And those may be based on concepts such as necessity, distress or force majeure but again, all subject to detailed consideration in the light of all of the circumstances. Thanks, Andrew. I think this discussion raises an interesting question about when and how the actions taken are assessed. States are having to make decisions based on relatively limited information. As we all know, uh, COVID-19 is a new virus and one on which there's still very limited data. So as the months go by, could state action be viewed differently with hindsight? Well, indeed, that possibility exists, and states may find it important for this reason, indeed for a multitude of other reasons, to retain comprehensive, contemporaneous records of the basis for decision-making, the state of knowledge at the time. They should also be careful to ensure that communications with individual investors about their investments, as well as broader communications with industry and sector groups, are clearly documented. Yeah, and likewise, investors will want to keep contemporaneous records of the impact of the investments affected by the state action. And any communications with states, particularly those seeking or receiving assurances as to treatment, should be very carefully recorded and preserved. They could be extremely important in the future. Of course, we tend to help clients with that where necessary. 
Andrew, Christian, thank you both. We've managed to get through this recording in lockdown without interruption from children, pets and delivery drivers. And together you've raised some really helpful questions for both states and investors to consider in assessing whether a state's response to COVID-19 is consistent with those investment treaty obligations. And of course, I think a key takeaway is that question of whether an investor may be entitled to damages under an international investment agreement is very likely to be highly fact and treaty specific. So thank you to everybody listening. If you have any questions arising out of this podcast, please do reach out to me, Christian or Andrew. We'd be very happy to discuss this topic with you in the context of your specific circumstances.